plenty going on on your radio today. This is Playback Daily. I'm Carol Moran and here's what you might have missed. So telling, telling somebody who lives with obesity to eat less and move more is a bit like telling somebody with depression to cheer up. Like it's a gross oversimplification. COVID, I had said before, was a perfect storm for, you know, alcohol-related harm. And certainly during the first wave, it really, as you know, people were off work and at home and there was no kind of night and day or, or uh, weekday and weekend. People were drinking a lot and, uh, you know, people who were already drinking a lot then drank more. He was warned to stop his work of aiding um, fugitives and escapees, not only by the Germans, but by the Irish government, which, uh, as you know, was neutral during World War II. So they didn't want a pretext that would drag Ireland into the war. And on Today with Claire Byrne, Ozempic, the treatment for diabetes and the rise in the misuse of the drug for weight loss. Well, it's been described as Hollywood's worst kept secret. It's apparently used by the rich and famous to get thin quickly. Ozempic has also led to dramatic results for patients who spent decades struggling with obesity. But this injectable medication has attracted controversy because it triggers a disgust for food. It was initially designed as a treatment for diabetes, not as a weight loss medication. But the unexpected increase in demand has also led to supply chain issues across the world. So is this so-called wonder drug the magic solution to weight loss or does it come with a cost? Here to tell us more is Dr Michael Crotty, GP, who specialises in obesity medicine and is the clinical lead for the My Best Weight Clinic in Black Rock. Good morning to you. Good morning, Claire. Thank, How are you? Thank you jo- for joining us. Tell us about this drug, Ozempic. What is it? How does it work? Yeah, so Ozempic is the brand name for a medication uh, also known as semaglutide. Um, it's licensed for the treatment of diabetes in Ireland. Um, it is produced for treating diabetes. Uh, it's in a family of medications called GLP-1 medications, uh, glucagon-like peptide. Essentially, it mimics a hormone that we naturally have in our body, uh, and that hormone affects our insulin production. It affects how insulin works in our body and our blood sugar regulation. That hormone is also a fullness hormone, so that hormone also also communicates with the subconscious parts of our brain, the caveman part of my brain that regulates appetite, so hunger and fullness, uh, and another part of the brain uh, called the limbic system that regulates reward from food. So these medications were developed, uh, this family of medications were developed about 20 years ago to treat diabetes, and we've been using them safely and effectively for that for years. In recent years, kind of more studies have shown a huge benefit and value for these medications in also treating the chronic disease of obesity. So uh, it's the same medication, but it's multiple different uses. In the same way as we have blood pressure tablets that will help for angina and we have inhalers that might help with asthma and COPD, uh, it's another use for the same medication. And how do people feel when they're on it? I mean, you talked about, uh, you know, triggering that sense of fullness. If you're on this drug and you see food, what's your response? So it's interesting because I think we're seeing a lot of this kind of media attention and, and you're talking there about kind of, you know, this being Hollywood's worst kept secret and celebrities using it and a solution for rapid weight loss, that would be totally inappropriate use of this medication. These are not weight loss medications. These are medications for people who are living with a chronic disease of obesity. So essentially, if somebody is living with excess weight and their weight is having a negative impact
impact on health, whether it's psychological, physical, functional, metabolic or medical health. If health is affected, then weight is not just a risk factor, it's a medical condition in its own right, and it's quite a complicated one. When somebody is on these medications, it's treating the underlying biology in our subconscious brain that leads us to, to struggle with obesity. So if I have obesity because of genetic factors and many factors in my environment, I am more driven. I have higher levels of hunger hormones. I have le lower levels of fullness hormones. I have a hyperactive reward pathway for food. So my appetite system is different from somebody else, and that puts me at risk of taking more than my body needs. And in the environment we live in, where we have you know, many other factors that are affecting our intake, people will struggle with their weight. And it, isn't, it is not because of a lack of willpower. It is not because of a lack of motivation. It is not a lifestyle issue. It's not a personal fault. This is a medical issue. So when somebody takes these medications and they do it kind of supervised by a doctor in a, in a, a controlled way, um, when people come back, they feel less hungry. They feel more satisfied sooner. So they feel fuller quicker with these medications than they would have done before. In the same way as somebody else who doesn't have obesity will feel full with a certain amount of food, they also get that sense of fullness. And for some people that I treat, they would report that for the first time in their lives, they feel full. Mm -hmm. uh, it does have an effect on the reward pathways to reduce craving and wanting and that kind of the dopamine pleasure reward kind of activation for food as well. If somebody is on these medications, you know, initially there can be significant nausea that tends to be transient and it settles down. But this idea that they are a medication that makes food repulsive to us is totally wrong. And, and kind of any articles that are kind of saying that are very poorly researched. Okay. But all of those uh, reactions and responses that you have described, mm. apart from the nausea, they might be desirable for someone who just wants to drop a few pounds to fit into a red carpet dress. So you can understand how it has moved into this celebrity area. Absolutely. And, and I think that, that brings up a really good point that we really need to make a distinction between treating somebody who has a medical health issue where weight is affecting their health and treating, as I call it, the chronic disease of obesity is different from this cultural desire for thinness. Somebody who has a cultural desire to be thin for, for other reasons, who doesn't have a, a medical issue, who doesn't have impairment of health, that is not what these medications are for. They should not be used in that fashion. Uh, the, these medications are open to abuse. They're open to being used inappropriately appropriately, people who are going on these medications need to be aware that this medication will control the biology in my brain. As a side effect of that, weight comes down and our weight will eventually plateau. We need to remain on the medication to keep our weight at that level. If I, ta if I stop taking this medication, weight will come back. So these are long-term treatments for a complicated, progressive chronic disease. They are not a diet tablet. They are not a weight loss medication as such. And Claire asked Dr. Michael Crotty why he would prescribe Ozempic. How do you decide then uh, who is a good candidate for these injections, for this treatment? Do you base that on a, a person's body mass index or are there other factors, Michael? No, I, I couldn't give a flying tuppence about body mass index or weight. Um, I look at the effect that somebody's weight is having on their health. So listening to patients, taking their history, the patients I meet, despite um, you know being physically active, despite being uber um, focused on healthy eating, they're still struggling with weight. They'll have been through, they'll have done everything everything in the past from uh, unhealthy kind of, you know, disordered eating, dieting, they've done all these things and, and yet they still struggle with weight. So when you listen to somebody and you hear the profound impact that weight can have for some people in their life on their psychological well-being, their physical function and their metabolic health, that's the key for me. So if we establish somebody is living with excess weight uh, and it's affecting their health, then we'll talk about options. But my, my role is to kind of put out information. Smart people make good decisions. If you give them the information 
medication, what these medications are for, what are the pros and cons, what are the costs, what are the side effects, then people will decide if they feel it's right for them. And for some people, you know, for, if we're talking about treatment for obesity, we talk about surgical treatments, we talk about medication treatments, and we talk about life treatments. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's up to each individual to tell me what's right for them in the context of their life. It's not the days of the doctor telling people what to do are, are dead and buried. It's a case of collaborating and developing a plan for people um, you know, that, that is sustainable long term. And if somebody comes back to me, and let's say they are a person who is having severe nausea, or they, you know, uh, the main question, one of the main questions I ask people is, you know, can you still eat and enjoy food? And if they say no, I'll say, okay, well, this medication is not right for you. I couldn't care less how much weight somebody has lost. That's not kind of what we're looking for. We are looking to give people regulation of appetite. We're looking to control um, kind of the biological factors that are causing issues for them so they can live their life, they can enjoy their life, they can do the things they want to do. They're just doing it with more freedom that they don't have this constant battle between the subconscious part of our brain and the smart guy driving the bus. Uh, This is all over TikTok, this uh, Mm. drug, people talking about it, who's Mm. been taking it, who hasn't, the people who admitted to using it. And it's being prescribed off licence, I see, in the United States and in the UK. Have you been in a position yet where you've had to refuse this treatment to people because they're looking, as you say, to become uh, thin as Mm. opposed to deal with obesity? Yeah, so, so I think if we look at kind of the off-licence thing is, is a slightly more nuanced issue. So obviously medications are produced based on kind of scientific data and the company that produces them applies for a licence for a certain indication. So Ozempic is licensed to treat diabetes. That's what it's produced for. That doesn't mean that it's not safe and effective and very good to use for other um, uh, medical conditions. So uh, Ozempic, the generic name is semaglutide. Semaglutide, the exact same medication and molecule is branded under the brand name Wegovi for weight management and that is licensed and indicated for weight management we just don't have it in Ireland yet uh, because there is um, uh, it hasn't been kind of launched here yet so Ozempic and Wegovi are the same stuff one has a license for diabetes the other has a license for obesity uh, there is another medication called Saxenda that is uh, the same family of, of drugs that is available in Ireland and it's a daily injection so so I think the, the licensing thing kind of is a slightly different thing mm-hmm. appropriate use is a separate issue as far as if somebody's coming to me and they don't live with the chronic disease of obesity, they don't have impairment of health, then I'll have a discussion with that person about what appropriate use of this medication is for, and it may not be the best thing for them. And Claire asked about the current understanding of obesity. A couple of months ago on the programme, we were speaking to a bariatric mm. surgeon, Dr. John Keneally, and he was explaining to us that he believes that this advice to eat less and move more when it comes to people who have obesity is outdated. It's mm. not going to work. Do you agree with that? 100%. So telling, telling somebody who lives with obesity to eat less and move more is a bit like telling somebody with depression to cheer up. Like it's a gross oversimplification. When we understand the biology, when we understand the genetic contributions, when we understand the hormonal regulation of appetite in the brain, when we understand the kind of reward pathways, dopamine, opioid, cannabinoid receptors in the brain, when we understand that within my brain, there is almost like a thermostat, a set point for weight. So whatever weight I I achieve, uh, that is set in my brain. That's where my brain and my body considers I should be. It is not natural or intended for any healthy animal to lose weight from an evolution point. 
point of view. So our body will defend our higher weight. And that's why people, you know, people will repeatedly lose weight with kind of the most uh, intensive, most kind of, you know, uh, um, restrictive. restrictive kind of measures. But over time, our biology adjusts. So our, our body is, is evolved to survive when food is scarce. So our body will increase levels of hunger hormones. It'll reduce the fullness hormones. It'll slow our metabolism. It'll increase our craving and reward from food to encourage our weight back up to our set point. And that's the problem is that kind of, if that set point is, is at a point where it's, it's negatively affecting our health, then our body is continuously defending that. And most people, they, the weight will come back over time. That, you know, is we, so, that is so depressing. So your body is constantly trying to get and will do everything it can do to get to the highest weight you've ever been. Uh, it will defend kind of the highest weight you have been. It will try and get you back to that level. And, and again, you could say on one point it's depressing, but for people who live with obesity, this is validation that despite being uh, uh, smart, despite being educated on nutrition, despite eating healthy, despite being physically active, they are still struggling and yes. it's not their fault. Mm-hmm. This is not willpower motivation. It's a medical issue. So, so again, people who see me, they have lost weight in huge amount and it has come back over time and they continue to struggle because they have never been treated. And as I said, treatment is surgical treatments, medication treatments or life treatments, which can be looking at sleep and stress, nutrition, physical activity. Uh, it can be looking at kind of time management, behavioural interventions. So there's many different treatments, but most people have never been treated. Dr. Michael Cratty from Today with Claire Byrne. And on the Ryan Tuberty Show, a conversation about writing, reading and the Irish priest who helped save thousands of lives in the occupation of Rome in World War Two. When Joseph O'Connor or Joe O'Connor popped into studio. Uh, you're Joseph O'Connor in your books. Are you Joe to anyone? Joe. Joe are you? To, well, Joe to pretty much everyone. Yeah. Um, so it's um, my my father calls me Joe and my lovely stepmother calls me Joseph. And uh, when I was 21, my dad said he wanted to, me to call him Sean from now on, which I do. And I think my two kids might now want to start calling me Joe. And um, I, I, I will report further on that. But uh, Yes. But yeah, Joe, for this. I always thought it was peculiar when I was a kid when people referred to their parents by their first names. I was like, it's kind of, it just was, it was I was discombobulated socially by it. I just thought it was a very peculiar thing to yeah. do. Yeah, well, mine have referred to me by other terms too <laughs> over the years. Um, we were discussing, I, I was. I have your book, I read it before Christmas. Uh, congratulations. It, uh, we got, we've got some, so much to talk about. My father's house. Uh, in fact, I was in a bookshop yesterday and a woman came in. She said, hello. And I said, hello. And uh, I said, what are you going for today? And she said, oh, Joseph O'Connor's new book. And she, she was looking around for it. And I picked it off the shelf. Oh. I said, there you are. <laughs> God, <laughs> God bless you, Ryan. Oh, I really am. We will, hand, <laughs> we will hand sell every copy <laughs> if we need to. Door to door, guerrilla sales. But we were talking about reading. And I, I, as you can see, I have these little post-its that I keep my, my, by my bed that I sometimes when I'm, I know yeah. I'm going to be interviewing the author, I'll pick out bits that I like. And you said to me just a second ago that you read with a pen in your hand. Yes, I do. And um, I'm a, a, a fierce uh, underliner um, of, of books. And um, sometimes I come across a book in the house that I, I might have read 20 years ago or even oh, yeah. when I was a kid. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and I, I see things that I underlined when I was 17 or when I was 25. And I, I wonder why. And yeah. it's, it's quite a revealing thing about somebody, I think, the bits that they would 
pick out in a book. I mean, I've often thought there's a short story or a novella or something based on looking into the books that somebody has read and, and their notes and their underlinings. I love you know, that. It's, it's quite, quite revealing about the things that mean something to us as readers or meant something to us at the time. And then, of course, if you read the book now, you, you'd underline... Um, Different things. I, I think it's the hallmark of a really great book is that it's capable of being reread. You know, I, I have my Desert Island books that I come back to every two or three years. It's like going on a pilgrimage yeah. to me. If I get tired of reading, I go back to um, Oscar and Luc- Lucinda by Peter Carey or Jazz by Toni Morrison or The Catcher in the Rye by J.D. Salinger, books that I've been reading for 20 or 30 years in some cases. And I always see something new in them. And I, I think that is the test. You know? Yes, yes. I gave The Catcher in the Rye to my daughter on her 18th birthday just to explain what a phony is. <laughs> just so you know. Yeah, yeah I mean, I, I've given it to a few young people over yeah. the years. And I mean, I, I suppose... I think people's responses to it have changed because the whole business of being a teenager has changed. And the wonderful, irreverent, cheeky um, character that is Holden Caulfield, mm. um, the narrator of The Catcher and Wright, when, when you read him when we were kids, I mean, he was explosive because mm. nobody ever talked to grown-ups. It's all changed uh, now, like, like that. There's a touch of kind of punk rock about Holden Caulfield. And I think it has changed and young people quite rightly have a better sense of themselves and their rights and they're more articulate and and all of that. So so I'm, I'm not sure that The Catcher still has the appeal to younger people that it had to me. But in my that's the book that made me want yeah. to be a writer. Is it really? Yes, it is. I mean, I grew up in a home where there were books and I, I always loved reading. Um, but I, I could probably date this, Ryan, if I thought about it carefully enough. But on a particular day when I was in fifth year in school, I remember turning the last page of The Catcher in the Rye and saying, I would like to do that with my life. You know, it had a profound um, effect on me. It's and like, I, I, sometimes, like that, yes. I sometimes think that every book I've ever written since, it, to some extent, has, has been an attempt to, to write something as, as powerful and beautiful and funny and moving as The Catcher in the Rye. And I think a lot of writers would have a similar story. That, that was the one that made all the difference to me. And Ryan came to the subject of Joe's new book, Monsignor Hugh O'Flaherty. When did you uh, first come across the name Hugh O'Flaherty? Monsignor Hugh O'Flaherty. Monsignor Hugh O'Flaherty, yeah. Well, obviously I've been thinking about this, um, Ryan, and um, I, I don't have a definite answer. I, I have a feeling that um, it was in Listowel, County Kerry, where there is the World Famous Writers Week. And I've been going to that since I was a young fella, since before I ever published a book. Mm. You know, I've been going on and off to Listowel for, for 30 years now, and I love it. And, you know, it's a wonderful Irish uh, literary festival. And I think it was um, one night in the bar, late at night of the Listowel Arms Hotel, that somebody told me the story of Hugh O'Flaherty, who was born in Cork, in 1898, brought up in Kerry, very much thought of himself as a Kerry person and Kerry people are rightly um, very proud of him. He grew up in the 1920s. He was a young man. So the black and tans and all of that was going on uh, and in a particular way in that part of the country. Mm-hmm. He became a school teacher and then in his later 20s, he uh, became a Catholic priest and he was a learned scholarly uh, a fellow with a couple of PhDs and he spoke five or six languages and he went off to Rome where he worked in the um, Curia, the Vatican Civil Service. So Hugh is in uh, the Vatican 
in the late 1930s as the Second World War breaks out. As people who've been to Rome will know, the Vatican is actually an independent state. It's one of the smallest countries in the world. It's about a sixth of a square mile and there is a boundary around the Vatican. Um, So the Nazis invaded many places in Europe, including Italy, closer and closer to Rome. They moved into Rome, conquered Rome in September of 1943, but they did not enter the Vatican. They, um, I won't say respected its neutrality, but I think they were afraid to enter the Vatican because of the response of Catholic people in Germany. So Hugh is based there and he begins to put together a small group of friends who work as an escape line, helping uh, allied prisoners who've escaped from the fascist prisoner of war camps in Italy to uh, to safety. So they, they hid many of them in the Vatican and they smuggled many out. Um, so he was he put himself in the way of immense danger um, doing this. He could have been killed at any point during the nine-month occupation of Rome. His priesthood would certainly not have saved him because the Gestapo, um, as we know, murdered at least two um, Catholic priests during the occupation of Rome. He was warned to stop his work of aiding Um, fugitives and escapees, not only by the Germans, but by the Irish government, which, uh, as you know, was neutral during World War II. So they didn't want a pretext that would drag Ireland into the war. The quote, if I cut across, tell that man, is that the quote, tell that man he will end up in a concentration camp if he's not careful and it might do him some good. Yeah, well, that's, Where did that quote come from? That, that's from an official document that anybody can see. It's, it's in the Department of Foreign it? Affairs archive wow. uh, where they're becoming increasingly concerned about this troublesome priest who's going around um, Rome saving British soldiers and allied troops um, having been told not to. Um, and it's quite a chilling document for the Irish government to say to an Irish citizen you're going to end up in a concentration camp and maybe it would do you good some enough good. enough for you, yeah. Um, then there was the, the, the attitude of the um, Vatican hierarchy, which is uh, which is also telling him to stop because they want the physical and cultural and artistic legacy of the Vatican to be preserved. They don't want the Nazi tanks rolling into St. Peter's Square and the swastika flying from the basilica, perhaps. And he must have argued with himself about it. There must have been moments when he wrestled with all of this himself, but he seems to have been one of those people whose moral compass was so strong that he just decided, I am going to act. Uh, And I have a sense of him saying, you know, today I could save three people. I could actually save the lives of three or four or ten people. Um, The soldier, the escaped soldiers used to turn up in St. Peter's Square. He hid in the open. He was a big, tall man. He stood on the steps of the Basilica and it word got around the, the prisoner of war camps. If you can just make your way into the Vatican, find this man, he will save you. So he could have been shot by a sniper. He, he could have been kidnapped by the Gestapo. He showed immense personal courage and bravery. Um, so he's an unusual figure because, as I say, he's, he's, quite, he's quite scholarly. He's a very learned man, but he's kind of man of action. And Joe spoke about the importance of singer and socialite Delia Murphy in Rome and the research he undertook. His family very graciously gave me access to his correspondence while I was preparing and researching, my father says. And there's kind of very touching things in it about um, he, he was an old school guy. He was I lived in South London for 
uh, seven years, and he was what they used to call in South London a stand-up guy. He was more George Raft than Bing Crosby. <laughs> he loved boxing. He loved yeah. sport. Um, he was a very devout man, but he, he as he's, somebody said about him once, was not the kind of priest who lived and died and ate and slept in the church. He loved social life. Golf. He liked music. He liked golf. Um, and he very brilliantly put together this, this group of um, people, about seven or eight people, to help him in this effort of saving the fugitives. And the remarkable thing about them is they're, they're not seven or eight Catholic priests. They're from very different faith perspectives and backgrounds. The, the women in this group were very, very important, um, including one amazing woman um, who fans of Irish music will know, um, Delia Murphy, um, Delia Kiernan, as, as she was known yeah. in, in Rome at the time, who had had a career as a, as a folk singer, a ballad singer in Ireland. Uh, she had made albums. I was chatting um, recently about her with... Um, John Kelly, yes, who, who said to me that D- Delia Murphy at the time really was like a pop star. She was yeah. 1940s Ireland, you know, answer to a pop star. She was in Rome because her husband was the Irish ambassador Tom, there. Tom, 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 Tom Kiernan, who was very much involved in this In this parish. story, I was laughing at it going, oh, that's mad, because my brief foray into trying to write something was a Kennedy book, and it was uh, the Shamrock Ceremony. Mm. The bowl of shamrock given to President Kennedy was given to him by Kiernan. Yes, Kiernan. And in the research of that, I found that she was his wife was a a big star. She she was. And but also they were the they were the crack. Like that was the as a diplomat and a really interesting wife. Yeah, people wanted to go to their parties. Yeah, I think Tom Kiernan had a role in RTE as well. Forgive me for not knowing absolutely off the top of my head, but not not that he was the director general, but a senior role in RTE. But she was before he became a diplomat. She's the figure. So so she's in Rome, and um, she's. Kind of very likable, sociable um, woman who is Catholic but kind of sceptical and she thinks being the wife of the Irish ambassador to Rome involves a lot of kind of standing around and being talked at by archbishops and, as she says, pretending to listen. Um, and she, she, she feels a great empathy for, yeah. for the young Irish people in Rome who are entering religious life. Yes. There might be 500 young men and women in Rome who want to be priests and nuns. It's the Second World War. There's no food. It's very, very frightening. You know, there are air, air raids happening often. Menace. Pl- planes the size of a London bus yeah. appear in the sky, yeah. raining down bombs. And she decides, well, all I have is, is you know, an embassy. And the embassy has a swimming pool. And I'm going to invite um, these young people around once a week and feed them and let them use the swimming pool. And her husband goes mad, saying, well, at least, the, you know, the, the, the sexes must attend on different days. And she says, well, you know, you're no fun, but she, that's why I married you. Yeah. Um, and so, so, so a kind of irreverent... Um, fascinating, very independent woman. So she becomes one of the helpers of Hugh O'Flaherty in the escape line. Another person is a British escaped officer, uh, Sam Derry, who's got like military knowledge and counter surveillance training. There's the British ambassador who is, you know, an aristocratic person who is a friend of the Queen Mother, um, Sir Hugh Darcy Osborne. And then a, a character who really intrigues me called John May, who was his butler. Yeah. And he was a cockney. And every, every group of people who want to do good 
and be be high-minded yeah. and save people and believe in human rights, they always need a guy like John May. Because he, he's the, the guy, if you, yeah. if, you, if you want a stolen German motorbike, <laughs> or if, if, you, if you want train tickets to Zurich. Still and a pan yeah, some chocolate. John, like John May is the guy yeah, you, yeah, yeah. you go to. Um, so it's a mixture of my version of characters based on real people and then I have also invented fictional characters. Um, so in that sense, a bit like the structure of my book Star of the Sea, which which takes, you know, real real events and real and real people as the starting point for a novel. So that's uh, my father's house in four, wow. four I, minutes. I, I, Joe O'Connor from the Ryan Tuberty Show. Well, there's a new documentary about the artistic Chelsea Hotel in New York. It's called Dreaming Walls. And Dave Fanning was talking to Claire Byrne about the legends of this infamous hotel. So the Chelsea Hotel, yep. um, the documentary that we're talking about, it looks at the modern day version of, it does. of this place, yeah. which isn't the same as the entity way back in no, the 50s No, I've been a bit cruel to it because it's not what I wanted, you know, because that's what I want. But I mean, it's actually very good for what it is, mm-hmm. just showing, you know, faded glamour of a part of New York that like, was 20th century, went out 22 years into this one and the Chelsea Hotel is basically what it was, is gone. So what they're talking about is what's happening now in terms of the yeah. attempts to redevelop it. That's not what you wanted. What you wanted was give me the glamour. Yeah, but I'm not giving out about the... That's not fair. I, no, 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 that's yeah, fine. No, yeah, but, but it yeah. just does something else. Not so what, much what, even the glamour because it was never glamour. That's the mm-hmm. funny thing about the. I mean, the Chelsea Hotel was built in the early 1880s. So it was the tallest building in New York at one stage, actually, even though it was only 11 storeys. And then it became this cultural kind of centre by uh, proxy, accident, whatever, osmosis because enough people... I don't know what it was in the 40s. And then it really came into its own on that level in terms of the 50s, in terms of intellectuals and artists and bohemians and radicals and all the rest of it. In Why? Book. Why did that happen? Why not? I mean, I'll give you a perfect example. There's a book out by Barney Hoskins about this kind of leafy bolt hole in New York, in New York State, called Woodstock. And it's a place where in the 30s and 40s all kind of artists and all kind of writers and everything just accumulated. And it's just like the Catskills are there, the Hudson is there, and it's a rural kind of artistic colony because it just became that. Mm-hmm. So in the same way in the centre of New York City, this just became this. One of the reasons is probably the fact that the owners were always pretty damn good to people, i.e. If you were different, if you were out there, if you were eccentric, you wouldn't pay as much as you would for a... You'd pay half the price as you would for a room just around the corner. So it attracted a lot of those Always people. attractive. Yeah. Bob Dylan's connection then, we mentioned him at the start. Well, I mean, there's just so many. Every single person who's ever been anything in rock and roll had to be there at one stage. Bob Dylan's one, from our point of view, is the fact that he was the king of music in terms of 1964 and what he was doing and changing music. I don't know if he invented anything, but he was changing music. And in the space of 18 months, maybe for any artistic endeavour from anybody I know, the most astonishing three pieces of work came out. One of them was uh, Bring It All Back Home. The next was Highway 61 Revisited and then a double album called Blonde on Blonde. And on one side of Blonde on Blonde, he wrote a song to his wife and it's called Sad-Eyed Lady of the Lowlands. And ten years later, you played that one there from Desire where when his marriage was not happening at all, he had just released an album just before that actually called Blood on the Tracks where there was blood on every single track and it was really tough stuff. And he wrote a song directly mentioning her name, Sarah, and he says in that song, staying up for days in the Chelsea Hotel, Mm -hmm. writing Sad-Eyed Lady of the Lowlands for you. Did he live there? 
Yeah, I mean, everybody lived there. I mean, like, the thing about it is, that's the funny thing. It's a residential hotel, really. I mean, obviously, you can stay there for as many nights as you like. But, I mean, a lot of people, like, I mean, there's one guy in the movie who's been there since 1994, got this beautiful apartment there, and he tells great stories of, like, and it's really nice, really, there's an awful lot of art stuff all over the hotel. And he said that one day the, the, the door knocked and he opened it. And the guy said, is so-and-so living here? He says, no, he used to own the place. Well, come in, what's your name? Douglas Fairbanks, you know, this <laughs> yeah. kind of stuff, like mad stuff. Right, so people so, would just drop in, stay Stay for as long as they yeah, wanted. Yeah, and there's so many things that have happened there, but the Dylan connection is obviously huge for everybody. Okay. And Claire asked Dave about Leonard Cohen's song, Chelsea Hotel Number no. 2. It's a great song, and uh, it's one of the things, he used to introduce that song on stage called Chelsea Hotel Number no. 2 by saying that this is about Janis Joplin, and it's the one regret of his life that he did do that. He says, the sole indiscretion in my professional life, he wished he hadn't mentioned the name, it's very intimate, it's one or two lines that... Um, or for past the nine o'clock watershed, frankly. And uh, I think he's really sorry that he did. He met her in a lift on the way up. She was looking for Chris Christopherson. They had an intimate kind of vibe going on, etc. And that's one of those things that will happen in the Chelsea Hotel to anybody <laughs> who goes there. I mean, uh, yeah, so it, it's it's great. So it's a pity. That the, a funny thing about it is he kind of co-wrote that with a guy called Ron Cornelius. And he wrote it on a plane coming from America to Shannon. Huh. Uh, supposedly, anyway, you know. So they met in the lift and had a fleeting affair. Yeah. Yeah. He then writes about it in the song and tells everyone it's about her. Yeah, and uh, he wished he hadn't. And also she died, like I remember, by about 1970 or there, yeah. about 69, Point about it is also that um, like it's, Leonard Cohn was not that kind of person. He just felt bad about it. That's right, yeah. OK. Did yeah. she say anything, though? Did no, she funny, she's in the movie. I mean, like, there's not that many people in the movie that you want to see in the movie, like, because they don't, it's not about... It's not about the then, it's about the now. Mm-hmm. But she, the, the, the guy who owns the place, and that's one of the reasons why it stayed the way it is. He's a really cool guy. He took it over from his father and that. And he does, he, he will definitely, if you're a bohemian or a radical or an intellectual or an artist, he'll, he'll, he'll listen to you and give you a room. And I wonder, does it have a, a creative vibe about it? Like, did you go there to well, be I mean, creative, to spark something? Yeah, I'd love to be able to say I went there myself. I actually passed by it once. And, oh my God, look, that's the Chelsea Hotel. I never took a selfie even at the sign or at the Brendan Bean plaque that's outside as well. Um, I'd say those, who have been there would say, yeah, that is the case. Mm-hmm. No question about it. An awful lot of writers, an awful lot of film people. Well, you mentioned Brendan Behan. What's the connection there? Well, Brendan Behan, when he went to New York, he went there and he wrote supposedly two books there. He was over to see one of his plays being done over there, but he was drinking a lot and he was getting sort of a bit whatever. Came back to Ireland, was always was definitely going back to New York and then never did. He mm-hmm. died in the early 60s then in Ireland. But the plaque is there. The plaque is there, yeah. Big plaque for him, yeah. Sid and Nancy? Well, the Sid and Nancy one is the most sordid story. I mean, to be blunt, the two of them were completely and absolutely strung out on heroin, and that was the that was the end of them. He and staying did, there, both staying, both there. staying there. Did he murder her? Um, he was up and charged and all that, and then four months later he died anyway in Greenwich Village in a, in a, in a friend's house where he, where he was up on remand or whatever the word is. And uh, so we never know. I mean, there are those who would say Gary Oman, who played him in the movie, said he definitely didn't. But he um, admitted it in the police interview. He, he did. Didn't that's he? the first thing he said. I've killed her, Nancy yeah. Sponge. Yeah, so I don't know. Like he said, he doesn't remember anything, mm-hmm. and it's just a total mess. And the two of them, the two of them were like, I mean, even if you see the six-part documentary series that was on TV recently about the Sex Pistols, I didn't see that, but I know the way the two of them meet and the way it all is, it's just, just grim, sordid stuff. Dave Vanning from today with Claire Byrne. And on the live line in the afternoon, after Rachel called Joe about the issue of avoidant restrictive food intake disorder. Donna was the first caller and she spoke about her child's safe foods, the handful of foods he will eat in a day. Yeah, we were um, just down at his brother's. Uh, sorry, now I'm out of breath. I just ran down from school. Yeah, uh, 
he was at his brother's soccer pitch, okay. uh, soccer match, and um, just Jaden has a bottle mainly, and okay. that's his main source of drink. And he was drinking out of it, and just look, kids are amazing, and they're yeah, they yeah. see what they see. Do you know what I mean? And he turned around and he said, "Oh, you're a baby." And Jaden then got upset and he wanted to leave okay. the pitch and the whole lot, and he won't go back to the pitch since. So Jaden had a he had a formula bottle. He had the bottle that we would yeah yeah okay, yeah. and then it is his one of his safe foods. Yeah, like this, that's his main source. Like the doctor told me, don't ever take him off it because okay. Okay. And, yeah. and and don't be worried for, from your point of view. Don't be bothered or worried about embarrassment. But the fact is that it was Jaden that got upset by it. Yeah, he does. And like I get upset on days too. Like yeah, you, okay. you can see the judgment from people because he's tall. He's six, and he's a very happy, yeah. high functioning. He has autism, and like it's just he looks fine. Do you know what I mean? Mm. So when you see a tall six-year-old with a bottle in his hand. You do see the judgment. I've sat in the car some days there bawling, crying just oh. for him. It's perfect to see it. And I just wish people would just understand like there's the, he eats uh, Milky Way chocolate stars as well. Okay. And um, he could have them at nine o'clock in the morning after okay. yogurt. And you do see people looking, you know, and we could be sitting down if we're going away on holidays. We could all be sitting down eating our dinner. And he's sitting with his rich tea biscuits and Milky Way stars. And you do, you feel bad. You wish he'd eat yeah. the stuff that we eat, but he doesn't, you know. And we just have to go with what he eats and just, he's happy. And that's all we can do for yeah, him. Yeah, yeah. And, and does the safe foods change? Like, it did for him, I suppose. He used to eat the baby jar dinners from the four to six months. But it had to be the cow and gate and it had to be the spaghetti bolognese one. Okay. And then he was on that for about three years and then the manufacturers just stopped making it. They didn't want the food to be, the kids to be eating it that young. And then he went off it. We had family and friends and just people we didn't even know were sending us the baby jars of food. Yeah. And then he went off them because we didn't have any. And he just stopped having dinners. He, he would just go without food. He would just starve for hours and hours and hours and end until... We just have to nearly force stuff into my times, and at that he'd get upset. And then I suppose we just learned to just give him what he asked for, and not to change things like his biscuits. He used to eat ginger nut biscuits. He's yeah. gone off them actually recently, only in the last two weeks. But with the rich tea biscuits and the ginger nut biscuits, and if they're broken or cracked, he yeah, won't eat yeah, them. Yeah, they have yeah. to be in a specific order. The ginger nuts have to be sitting on top of the rich tea biscuits. Because that's what he'll eat first. Okay. And if you change that up at all, he will tell you. He'll be like, no, fix it. You know, he'll just get out with you, like, or he just won't touch it. And do you reckon the recipe changed in the ginger nut that you were, that he was eating? I don't know. You see, with the OT, she was telling us to mix up the brands then as well. Um, just oh, okay. to get him used to different yeah. tastes and stuff like that. And it was working for a while, to be fair. But then we went back to just the the Aldi version and he was happy with those ones and he didn't like the I can't remember the other name brands now but he didn't okay. like the other ones so, so it does change okay. and but that, they drop it more than they get than they try something new he's terrified of food like yeah you know like even if he did something silly we'd be like oh my god oh you're a sausage he'll freak out at you because it's food based you know you're, you're talking about food and him and it just does not mix well like
And Martina called Joe about her experience with her seven-year-old son after they moved from Australia. So my son Liam has always had issues with food. I think it started even from as far back as when he was weaned, if I okay. you know, tried to go back that far. Um, we lived in Sydney, Australia, and he had quite a few safe foods. So he, he ate some things like French toast. So we had a, you know, he'd get an egg into him and full mm-hmm. fat milk. And I felt we were doing quite well with managing it. Um, but we moved back to Ireland in June of this year. And when we moved, he dropped French toast. He dropped all his safe foods. Wow. And it was extremely worrying for us. Um, he's now surviving on uh, you know, dried Cheerios that we import from Australia. Wow. Um, and we did try different brands here of Cheerios, Aldi, Tesco, Dunn's, um, you name it. But he can tell, like many people are mentioning yeah. parents here, they've got a very high sense of taste and, and smell. Um, so he's you know, very much surviving on what we're bringing in from Australia right now. Um, the one thing he will eat here is Kinder chocolate. That seems okay. to be the same um, as Australia. Um, but yeah, it's been really trying for us, especially afraid that he was going to drop weight. Um, luckily he'll take vitamins, um, for us, but we have had to bring him in and get his blood checked and everything to make sure, um, he's okay. So like most of the parents, it's just a worry. Are they growing? Are they getting enough? Uh, what, what can you do as a parent? Um, but yeah, so very much in common what other people are saying. It's very stressful. And Joe introduced an expert in the field of eating phobias, Dr. Felix. Dr. Felix uh, Conomakis has been mentioned on this programme. He's a chartered psychologist He's based in Birmingham. I think he was mentioned even on, on day one. Felix, good afternoon. Good afternoon. And good how, afternoon. How are you? I'm well. I'm based in London, by the way. Okay, but I do good. work remotely with people all okay. over the world. Well, London is, London is a new Birmingham, Felix. That's, that's a great place. Felix, tell us, you, you, you've, been, you've been pioneering this, this whole area for a number, a number of years. Um, mm. it, it struck, remember, our first phone call on this programme two days ago mm. was from a parent, one who was worried about her safe food running out, but two, mm. she was basically asking, does anyone else, uh, is anyone else in this situation? But it transpires from our reaction that a lot of parents are in this situation with their children. Is it any, oh, yeah. is it any one specific group of children that are affected by ARFID? Um, no, it's really across the board. And also not just children. I've seen adults in their yeah, 50s, yeah. occasionally 60. So they, they just weren't aware of the condition. They just thought it was them. Okay. Actually, this is very, very common. Uh, it's up there with spider phobia, in my opinion. Okay. Um, because it's food, that's the spanner in the works. People think, oh, you're just being fussy. Yeah. Whereas if it was a spider or, or something else, a rat, oh, well, that's, that's, sense. Uh, that's not sense. But it's logical. I understand that, you know, because they're creepy crawlies. But food, you know, yeah. we eat food. But you can have a phobia about anything. That's what confuses even a lot of doctors and eating disorder specialists. Okay. Um, it's an aversion. It just happens to be around food. And then the, the, the food, as, as you know, one has age issues, as we heard there from Donna. Mm. Her, her child is six, will only take his, his nutrition mm. through a, a yeah, special... Yeah, that's very in, in a I mean, then, there's, there's a reason for that, which is actually quite simple, which okay. is, you know, when the world is a big, scary place, we create rules to feel safe, to navigate yeah. it. We create rules around food. And these rules are, you've got to eat it this way or something bad will happen. So one day a child is hungry, they see McDonald's fries, 
that they eat it and go, oh, that's not too bad. I, I like that. I, I'm, I'm okay. Oh, try Burger King. No, I ate McDonald's. I'm yeah. fine. Nothing yeah. happened. Stick to McDonald's. Why take the risk? So this is indicative of anxiety, of this threat of something bad will happen if you don't just have the nice, known, safe food. So a lot of therapies, when they say, well, try this, it's like that. Well, it's not like that. You know, chicken nuggets are the same food, not grilled chicken. They're completely different foods yeah. to a person. Okay. Yeah. That's what people struggle to understand. So um, it's about, you know, everyone gets hung up on, oh, but you eat it this way from this brand. Why you? It's not really about the brand. It's a lack of trust. It's this fear of something harm for happening. And so I've got to stick to the known safe thing or something bad will happen. And is, is there a link? Because we, we are hearing children with autism, it, it happens. But we also heard a number of significant, a significant number of children who don't, uh, don't live yeah. with autism. Well, no, you can have it completely independently of autism. I, I've seen thousands of people. That's, that's, I'm the leading prolific practitioner in the world for this, and half of those are children. And the vast majority have no autism or other conditions because, you know, my Facebook forums, they say, is this to do with autism? Is it to do with OCD? Yeah. Well, you can have that and this, but one doesn't, uh, it's not caused by autism. If you have autism as well, that makes it a bit harder. Okay. You're a bit more likely to have those rules, but you can have it without it. It's not because of autism in itself. And Felix, yeah. how, how did you get into this specific area? I was uh, 14 years ago, I think, I was invited to do a program called Free Keto Series uh, 3 and explained selective eating, as it's called back then. I'd never heard of it. But as they explained it to me, I said, well, it sounds like a phobia. So I'm going to treat it like a phobia. I didn't have any other information to get in the way. So I treated it very simply in my naivety. And it worked very well. And from then I kept seeing more and more people. And I treated it like the brain has developed a fear and mistrust of food. And it worked mm-hmm. very, very well. Far, far better than I thought it would, actually. Dr. Felix there, then Susie called with her story. So basically our story is we, uh, we have three boys. Our eldest has autism and he's 10. He's always been a fussy eater. But he's got better over the years. Um, our five-year-old is neurotypical. And our toddler, who's just turned two, who I actually do suspect is, uh, has autism as well, okay. he d- eats nothing. He'll only drink formula. He'll only drink formula milk. Now, we've been seen by a dietitian and had advice from the OT. But um, at at the moment, he's fine with his weight, but he's off the charts. Your worry is he's only taking baby formula at the minute. He's only taking baby formula at the moment. It's affecting his growth. He's in the ninth percentile of his growth. Um, but, But his weight seems okay at the moment. And we've tried done all the advice he's encouraged been encouraged to do messy play with him you know we're offering the same foods his brothers eat everything else we're just trying positive re- reinforcement right but and um, he just you know he's got a major aversion to it he got he used to eat baby food off the spoon but mm-hmm. then he's been gagging and everything and the dietitian thought maybe as he was sick maybe that it could have been down to he's got neophobia um, so again, like what the doctor is saying, like it is that fear of, of food. Uh, so he just won't take any food at all. It's, it's just the milk, the formula milk that he'll have at the moment. And Susie, what are you worried about most? Um, I suppose I just, I mean, I wish I had a crystal ball and I knew when this was going to change that he'd start just accepting food because even with his brother, that is a very fussy eater who's 10, he... Uh, 
like he was one of those children that would only eat chicken nuggets and waffles. Mm. And as he got older, you know, it got it did get better for us. He would eat fruit, he peanut butter sandwiches. He was getting better nutrition. But it's just, I suppose, it's a whole different ball game when you see your child not attempting any food whatsoever, no food, no food off the spoon. But just, I, I, I you know, I, I just love to know that, you know, that in time that he'll surprise us all. I suppose, but. Sure. Okay, Felix. I know you can't comment on, and I wouldn't expect you to comment on individual cases. But um, oh, Susie is worried that he's the, the child is two and will only yeah. only take formula milk. Well, that's also quite common, but but that doesn't mean he's going to be like that the rest of his life. You know, okay. the, the children are more anxious about things and they don't really understand things. You know, at two, I've seen people who live with formula till four or five. And then, and then something changes, you know, they add mm-hmm. something else. Or, or, I mean, I have worked with people who only eat liquids and, and shakes and things like that as well, including, uh, you know, f- people on tubes who can't even eat their own saliva, uh, swallow their own saliva. So the, the severity of it doesn't mean you can't change it. It just means when, when the brain is so scared about something, it, it sort of shuts down. And, and that's why how you approach it is very important um, a child feels someone's going to make me something and I'm not quite ready and I feel out of control and that's when the defences come up. So uh, how we approach it and lower those defences is really the key. Um, in many ways, what I do is simple. It's just how do you work with a person to, to make them feel they can trust you and then you can lead them mm-hmm. to look at things differently. That's the real skill in it. From the Live Line with Joe Duffy. And on today with Claire Byrne, Two drinks or less a week. That's the advice from medics in Canada. This week, the Canadian Centre on Substance Use and Addiction released their advice on alcohol. And they're recommending that if you have two drinks or less per week, you are likely to avoid alcohol-related consequences. Basically, they advise that zero alcohol is the only way to avoid risk. So the question we're asking is, should we follow suit here? Well, I'm joined on the line by Dr. John Ryan, a consultant hepatologist at Beaumont Hospital in Dublin. Dr. Ryan, thank you for joining us this morning. Hi, Claire. Pleasure to be there. so, So as a liver specialist, do you agree with Canada's advice that the only safe limit for alcohol consumption is to just abstain. <laughs> I think that uh, these guidelines reflect that there's no safe limit uh, for drinking alcohol. And, you know, more recent studies since uh, we revised our uh, recommendations have shown that there is no safe limit. And maybe that's what they reflect. They seem very stark and severe, but that seem, that is kind of where they're coming from, I think. So do you think it would be a good idea to do that here in the hope that people would examine every drink that they're taking in the week or on the day? Yeah, I mean, you know, two two standard drinks or two two units might be a pint, you know, or a large glass of wine. So you get through that very, very quickly, you know. And I think it's probably a good reason that we're debating it and we're highlighting uh, our relationship with alcohol individually and thinking to ourselves maybe how best we might be able to cut down a drink less harmfully or in any uh, type of safer way. John, you will have people listening to this who are looking forward to having maybe two drinks on a, on a Friday night. That might be it for the week. Are we saying to them or are we suggesting that we say to them that that's just too much? Well, I think that, you know, as I said in, um, in, the, in an article today, that, you know, for an Irish audience, it's kind of a hard uh, concept to digest that, you know, that would be it. 
But I think what it's, again, saying that there is no safe limit. I think that, you know, the Irish uh, guidelines or low-risk drinking guidelines would suggest 11 units for uh, a woman and, and 17 for a man, which is, you know, about a bottle of wine a week for a woman and a bottle of wine and a half for, uh, a week for a man, something like that. Um, and I think that, you know, just decide, uh, looking at ourselves and saying, well, how, how best can we drink and how, um, if we are going to drink, uh, how we might be able to reduce it, particularly during January, you know, a dry January or having a month off can make a massive difference to your health. Can it? Oh, absolutely. And I mean, from a liver side, uh, all your scores or scans or any indicators of liver damage can really uh, reverse significantly during uh, you know, a decent period of absence, like like a month. The article you're talking about is Mary McCarthy's common piece in The Independent, I think, and she explains pouring a glass of wine, measuring it, it's 175 millilitres that she poured, and then realising when she checked that that was 1.6 units. So particularly for people who are drinking at home, you mightn't really know how many units you're taking. <laughs> well, that's exactly it. You know, home port measures are so different to, you know, if you're out, and it's very hard then to gauge and there's, you know, potentially, depending on how much drink is in the house, there's no way to turn it off or it's very, it's difficult. So, you know, these are just re- realities that we need to be be aware of. Mm-hmm. Um, oh. But it, the, the units add up very quickly, yeah. You know, when you um, said there that the... What what the, the the advice at the moment is 11 units for women, you said 17 for men. A bottle of wine for a woman, that equates to a bottle and a half for a man. Is that t- way too much? Um, well, I mean... In the UK, it's slightly different. Um, you know, it's even less for a man. And in America, it might be more, you know. so, And then in, in Canada now, it's even less. So um, it's really to say that there's, there's, no, there's no exact figure, you know. And uh, uh, the more you drink, the higher it goes. And then if you get into the higher brackets, it kind of the rate of harm or damage increases exponentially. Mm-hmm. Then, you know, I would see people who drink 100 to 200 units of alcohol a week at least and you know I think when I, I tell people certainly when you get into the 30 units a week for a woman or five, 50 units uh, a week for a man you're really going to start seeing big problems coming down the line. So what do those problems look like? From my point of view I'd see uh, liver scarring or liver damage which then develops into cirrhosis and you know everyone knows that the liver uh, is forgiving and will reverse, but there will be a point where it won't reverse and then you have irreversible liver damage. And at that point, um, you know, well, abstinence obviously is the only option to keep you from developing liver failure and all the other consequences. Um, But alcohol affects everything. I mean, you know, your mental health and many other parts of your uh, body. But I would imagine if you're drinking upwards of 30 and as you said, there are 100 to 200 units in some cases that uh, abstaining is very difficult once you're at that point. Yeah, I think that I would see people who've got into the habit, particularly with COVID, of drinking every day, you know, coming home, cracking open a bottle of wine, and that can quickly add up to 70 units a week and inadvertently, you know, developing harm from it. And it's something where maybe they, they come and see me and say, oh, geez, I never realised what I was doing and it seemed fine because I could function fine, you know. And then that's the kind of thing where that realisation can actually lead to abstinence or, or just cutting down into much less harmful drinking. Um, when you're drinking at the level of 200 units a week, yes, of course, then it's very difficult to, to give it up. But it is 
achievable with the right supports and the right mm. um, approach. Like Mick was saying there earlier about obesity, I mean, it's very different. It's about it's 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 not a judgmental uh, approach that works. It's a supportive one that understands the background to why someone might be drinking so much, and then linking them to the support that actually exists that that will be effective for them. You mentioned the change in habits over the COVID periods. What changes are you seeing in terms of who's presenting to you? Yeah, I mean, COVID, I had said before, was a perfect storm for, you know, alcohol-related harm. And certainly during the first wave, it really, as you know, people were off work and at home and there was no kind of night and day or or, uh, weekday and weekend. People were drinking a lot. And, you know, people who were already drinking a lot then drank more. And so we saw that and we saw the patterns were that um, there was a lot more present presentations to the emergency department with particularly mental health problems uh, related to alcohol and particularly women were affected in in greater volume than men and that was in the emergency department in the intensive care with severe alcohol related harms uh, it all seemed to increase particularly particularly uh, for women why do you think that is well i, I mean it, it just shows how fragile uh, perhaps uh, women are perhaps to to high levels of alcohol um and I mean, I guess that's what we're looking into. That's that is definitely a question that needs to be addressed. So, if you're somebody who is female and is looking forward every day to a couple of glasses of wine, you're saying the harmful, the ramifications of that are going to be problematic for your health. Most likely problematic for your health. Oh, the, yeah, absolutely. There's no doubt about it. I mean, I think that when you look at well, how can you, uh, uh, you know. How can you improve that or reduce the harm? You could think of definitely having days in the week where you don't drink, alcohol-free days. You need to give your body a breather and you say, okay, at least three or four days in the week where you don't drink any alcohol and you say, okay, Sunday to Thursday or when you're working, I don't drink anything. That's that's a start. And when you do drink, that you eat because people who just consume alcohol on its own and tipping away, uh, you know, without any food in your system, it isn't buffered and it all just floods into your liver and your body and that can cause more harm. And then if you are drinking, you, that you're drinking things with lower volume or sorry, percentage of alcohol, such as lower strength beers or lower strength wine or so, whatever it is, that have a less impact um, you know, there are, there are definitely methods that you can use to kind of mm-hmm. reduce the harm. Yeah. Knowing what you do and seeing what you see every day, do you drink alcohol? Yeah, I mean, in Ireland, people say that, you know, uh, do you drink alcohol? And I think that is relevant in some way that I can, you know, um, understand where people are coming from and, and see as an Irish person, you know, on, on the same level of uh, people knowing about other people who have alcohol problems and trying to understand that. So, yeah, it's important to know that. But I mean, um, you would be shocked by the things that I see on a daily basis that affect people of all ages and, and the harms that they've had from extreme levels of alcohol as well. So. Can, can you tell us a little bit about that, what what you do see, what it looks like, the age groups? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's you know, I would have people dying in their 30s from alcohol-related liver disease, you know, in, in, in tragic fashion and... Um, you know that is the reality. I would see people in their twenties with, um, and you know, advanced liver disease like cirrhosis from alcohol, and you know they would have been drinking a lot for a long time. Well, not well for their lives, but you know. But I would see alcohol in any age group and any gender. You know, um, causing severe liver damage and disease. And I mean, it, the problem is when you ha- have liver failure, it's not a, it's not a pleasant experience. And having 
you know, severe gastrointestinal hemorrhage or, you know, it's it's terrifying experience for people. And um, but that is what can happen. Dr. John Ryan from Today with Claire Byrne. And that's it for Playback Daily. So mind yourself till next time.